0: Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun. And our monitor boat was one as we sailed into the mystic. Now, hear the, sailors cry. the Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of churchland. Through the summer months, I've been offering something a little lighter than our usual fare. This is because I needed to take a break from producing a weekly program and because I thought you might appreciate some summertime storytelling to take with you out onto the back deck or out on a road trip. I've been reading from How the Light Gets In, a collection of my short stories published by the Anglican Book Centre back in 1999. I hope you've enjoyed these homespun tales, some of which I'm not sure I could have written now. To me, they reveal an innocence I no longer feel about the church and about its capacity to transform the world. But more about that another time. Here is the last story in that collection, which still holds true for me. Leaving is hard to do. One degree of separation. There is a popular theory making the rounds these days. It's referred to as six degrees of separation. It goes something like this Every person on the face of the earth is separated from every other person by no more than six people. This means that I know someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows someone who is a tribal hunter squatted over his fire in Papua New Guinea, or a nightclub singer in Bangkok, or a shop owner in Paris, France. I'm not sure I understand this theory. It sounds astonishing. But it's based on a simple mathematical application to the known population of the Earth. That is, if there were six billion people in the world, you just keep taking the square root until you get as close as you can to the number one which is you. The operation requires six square roots, by which we can deduce that, through just six other people, you and I know everyone in the world. Well, not by name. But when you're talking about the separation of actual people as opposed to cold, abstracted numbers of people, there is no mathematical calculation for the toll on the human heart. I know this because this Sunday... I will be announcing my resignation as the rector and priest of my parish. I will be leaving the people who have goaded me and provoked me, inspired me and amazed me, the people who have journeyed with me and I with them these last eight years. Already, my heart grows heavy. Over the years, I have often thought of leaving. You get stuck in a place after a while. You grow used to its compulsions, its blind spots, its beguiling sirens, Then, when you finally wake from your slumber and realize that these things don't bother you anymore, it feels like it must be time to get out, to move on. The problem is, the moment you actually make that decision, everything changes. Suddenly, you want back in again. By this Sunday, I will want to stop the fall of dominoes I have set in motion, but it will be too late. So I will be forced to enter the liturgy a liar knowing something the congregation doesn't know. While I will appear the same to them with the same idiosyncrasies they know far better than I know myself, they themselves will already have been transformed in my eyes. They will be on their way to becoming memories, familiar strangers I once knew. Fortunately, memories are often kinder than the real thing which may be the reason St. Paul addressed his letters to the saints living in Philippi or Colossae. Compared to the motley crew now gathered before him in his new congregation in some grotty Gentile outport, those folks back in his last place were starting to look pretty good. This is because the moment we choose to say goodbye to someone, they cease being the flesh and blood people who even now sit before us, their upturned faces waiting for the unsuspected announcement we are about to make. Already, they are icons. Take Barry, for instance, our organist, or the whole choir, for that matter. They try so hard, and yet they remain so awful, perhaps even worse than when I first came What kind of cruel God would place these particular well-meaning musicians in a parish that prides itself on traditional Anglican liturgy? You would think after all these years, something would have given way. Either we would have fired the lot of them and started over, or they themselves would have left out of sheer embarrassment. But the thing is, they have absolutely no idea how terrible they are. This is because they are so well-loved by the congregation, and they care so much for one another. No one ever speaks the truth. Instead, people compliment them on the stirring anthem, the challenging solo, that tricky passage there. Implicit criticism hangs in the air, but no one reaches for it. The words themselves are filled with too much love. For eight years, I have pulled out my hair. I have made countless hints and suggestions. I have even threatened to trade them all away at the great parishioner exchange, the game my clergy colleagues and I sometimes play over beers. One bad reader for an entire bad choir. Good trade. And all this time, nothing has changed. But approaching my last Sunday with them, which will come a few weeks from now, Knowing they will attempt some sort of moving farewell anthem in my honor, I already grow misty-eyed at the thought of them butchering it. In fact, right now I would gladly give up an entire cathedral evensong sung by professional choristers for just five minutes of this, my own battered choir, aiming at notes only to miss them, forgetting entrances altogether, warbling at the top ends of their untrained voices— I think we, all of us, meet most profoundly not around the areas in which we excel, but through those cracks in the surface where we are seen to fail, where we fall short. Our achievements, as real and necessary as they are, only serve to separate us further from one another, making us competitive and resentful of one another's success. It's through the cracks, the imperfections, that we see how much we need one another. The people I will carry in my heart away from this place, the people from whom I will be most painfully separated, are not those I have liked the best, some of whom in any case will remain my friends, and not those who have made the most significant contributions to the parish. The ones I will miss the most will be those with whom I have shared most deeply life's hurts and failings. And that means Lucille, which is amazing if I think about it. Because no one has caused me more grief. No one has upset my equilibrium more, or required more damage control, or more easily deflated by a single word, a single gesture, something I may have been working on for months. But that is our bond. How could I forget the time she stood up at Vestry and shot down my plans for a fundraising campaign to pay for an assistant curate? Her boldness caught me off guard. But then... I was not aware that this was only the final maneuver in a campaign she had been waging since I first broached the idea with the parish council some three months back. To how many of the older members of the congregation had she complained, over coffee or at the baked table at the Fall Bazaar, smiling sweetly at me as I walked past? We didn't need an assistant curate, she said to people, not if the rector was doing his job— It would only distract him from the things he wasn't doing already, things like visiting the elderly and bringing back morning prayer. By the time of our annual meeting that year, her ducks were already in a row. But I also know that Lucille was disappointed in marriage, not once, but twice. Both husbands were drinkers, one dying of liver failure, the other of cancer, and both left her with less than what she had before she married them. She had done the right thing by them both, stuck with them, nursed them through illness and through death, even through their abuse of resistance to her help. Now she sits alone most days, visibly shrinking away in a tiny apartment that looks out across a parking lot to a tall building that blocks the sun from ever reaching her shriveling African violence. Lucille has now dug a hole for herself so deep she will not climb out in what remains of her lifetime. She doesn't have enough time. There was a moment when I might have dealt with her, confronted her, accused her of undermining the ministry of her priest, but I found the only way I could truly reach her was to climb down there into the darkness from time to time and sit with her. Now, I'm glad I did. Our enmity has made us co-conspirators, gazing together into that darkness and finding not death, but a friend. Yes. Lucille is now among my friends, as odd as it is to hear myself say it. There is someone else I will take with me from this place, someone the rest would hardly even recognize as being one of them. Yet, Bruce gave me the precious gift of a simple observation a few years ago, when, at the prompting of his wife, he allowed himself to be prepared for confirmation. Bruce is not an Anglican, he was raised in the Church of Scotland the Presbyterian Church, back in industrialized Glasgow. His was a strict Calvinist upbringing, and he was all too glad to leave it behind when he met and married Gwen. She herself was raised in the Church of England. When they moved to Canada in the early years of their marriage, she drew closer to the church while he stayed away. Working together in their meat shop day after day, Sunday mornings became the only time the two were apart. An active member of the altar guild, Gwen would arrive early to set up for the first service and then stay on to help with the preparations for the main service as well. Sometimes if we were doing something that caught her interest, she would sit in on that second service as well. Meanwhile, Bruce stayed at home with a second cup of coffee, reading his paper and pottering about until it was time to start lunch, which he would prepare in time for her return. Approaching their 25th wedding anniversary, Gwen had suggested a renewal of their wedding vows, something she had witnessed others doing in her duties on the Altar Guild. In our preliminary conversation about it, it became clear Bruce was less enamored of the idea. Though not because of any squeamishness with the vows themselves, he simply thought it wasn't necessary to involve the church. As we talked, I enjoyed how openly he expressed his strong opinions and his vexatious questions about the church. Beneath his skepticism, I could detect a deep if somewhat unfocused faith. I wondered aloud if he might want to consider confirmation as a way of both exploring further his issues with the church and also reaffirming his faith. We decided he and I should talk more about this. So, for about six weeks, every Wednesday, we would meet at his shop at noon and go across the street to the pub for a beer and a bite. There he would rail against the church for its moral hypocrisy, for its enjoyment of earthly power and riches, for its fuzzy thinking and its dim-witted clergy, present company excluded, of course. I couldn't disagree with most of what he said, so he would go on. And you know that thing you do with a cup, he asked me one day? No, what thing? Where you wave something over it, a hanky or something? I gathered he was talking about the preparations at the altar when the burse and veil are removed, folded neatly and placed off to one side. Yes, I, I, I think so, I said. Well, at that precise moment, I always expect you to go shazam and pull a rabbit out of the cup. I couldn't help but laugh. Strangely, as he said it, I knew exactly what he meant. Bruce never was confirmed, though he and Gwen renewed their vows before a small gathering of family and friends in the side chapel one Saturday afternoon. But every so often he has shown up with Gwen for the early service, sitting in the back row. When we get to that part in the service where I remove the burse and veil, I have to concentrate especially hard on what I'm doing, knowing he's watching me, knowing that if I look up and catch his eye, I will likely break out into an ungodly snort. The theory of the six degrees of separation is supposed to help us recognize that we are much more closely connected to each other than we might have thought. It's a noble idea. But one degree of separation is just about all I can handle, being the degree by which we are separated from the people we already know and love. Jesus prayed that we be one even as he and the Father are one. As I get ready to announce my impending departure from this place, I cannot suppress the thought that maybe it's already happened. Maybe, deep down, we are already one, which is why separation is so hard for us to bear. Maybe all it takes for us to see it is a crack, some light, and the eyes of faith. I've been reading from my book, How the Light Gets In, a collection of short stories. It's been a pleasure giving these stories new life 20 years after they were published. Thank you for listening. Next week, we start our second season here in the cave. We'll spend some time through the fall talking about death and dying. The real story, as opposed to the packaged story the church has been selling for 2,000 years... Death may well have to do with resurrection, but it's a lot more wondrous than that, including not only strange deathbed phenomena and life-after-death visitations, but also life-before-life experiences. I'll be speaking with a spiritualist, a death-and-dying doula, and a writer and counselor who sees dead people. I hope you'll join me. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can write to me personally at... Mystic Caveman fifty three at Gmail.com. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been the Mystic Cave. But it's too late to stop now. It's too late to stop now.